So as I have said before, John develops his thoughts cyclically in his letter, speaking to similar truths, but in different ways as he progresses through this letter, 1 John. John is in exile. He is punished for his allegiance to Christ and to the way. His fellow ministry leaders, disciples, apostles, they have now died martyrs' deaths. John was the impetuous one. John was the son of thunder. You might recall John, at one point in the Gospels, wanted to call down fire from heaven for his enemies with his new Jesus powers, not exactly the life of love that Jesus was seeking to impart to his disciples. But John is elderly now. He knows his time is short. He is writing to his beloved fellow Christians, knowing that the world is entirely uncertain then as it is now. What do Christians need to hear? What would encourage and comfort us and also give us confidence in our walk with Christ? This letter from John, I would propose to you, is not full of mountain peaks. I don't think it's an understatement to say that it feels, to me at least, that the entire letter is one continuous high point in which we're seeing the beauty and the glory of Christ and of the gospel. He brings us to soaring heights and yet keeps it so uncomplicated. Love people. John speaks explicitly to one important concept, assurance. Knowing that we are saved, knowing that we belong to God, that we are reconciled to him, knowing that our sins are forgiven, not just knowing here, but knowing here. Knowing that we will not face God's judgment and righteous wrath and indignation on My sin. Oh, John speaks to assurance all throughout his letter, beginning in chapter 2, verses 3 and 5. He shows us how we can have confidence when we see the work of God, the life of God in our very lives. And he's going to continue to develop this theme until the zenith. At the end of this letter. And this is where we need to be absolutely clear. And this is particularly important for those of you who might be younger and who have grown up in the church. This one or any church. John here in his letter is speaking to the most stupendous truth. The life of God in the hearts of people. Pause for a moment. The very life of God in the life or the hearts of people. He is not speaking about a social club. He is not speaking to a group of people with similar interests or passions. 
nor is he speaking to a particular ethnic group or an age group. No, no. This is for all people and all ages. It's not as if his subject is a sports team or, God forbid, a political party or an ideology. It is for people from all walks of life. John is speaking about the church of Jesus Christ. Not a building, but people. Called out ones. Called out of the world by his wonderful grace. Sinners who have been converted. Sinners who have turned to God in repentance and staked their eternity by faith on the person and the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. People who are alive and who know what joy is and who know what hope is. Oh, saints, we cheapen the church when we reduce church and our Christian faith to our legalistic checklist at times. Christians, well, they're the ones who don't do this. Or they do this. Or they don't like these people over here. Ah, well, they're just hypocrites anyway. What a sad misrepresentation of the church. And John's entire letter pulsates with the life of God, the grace of God, and the love of God, and the hope of God. John is speaking to a living Organism, It's alive. The church. Which is for all people, no matter your skin color or cultural background. It is not for the old people or for the young people. It is for whosoever will may come. John is speaking to those who have a personal relationship with God through Jesus. People who have experienced the very essence of what God is, of who he is. Love. The life of God in the life of people. That's it. God lives in us. A topic we will pick up this morning. Remember, it was John who recorded to us what Jesus said to the Pharisee Nicodemus in the dead of night. Nicodemus had questions. John looked right at a righteous, esteemed religious leader in Israel. He said, bro, you need to be born again. Your righteousness, your accolades will not cut it on that day. You need To be born again. You must come to a place in life. In the poverty of spirit. Where you recognize that your sin is real. As is God's holiness. The two cannot coexist forever. Last week we saw that we ought to love others. Because of the amazing way that God loves us. God's love is not a fluffy sentiment rooted in emotionalism. God's love is breathtaking 
in its beauty. Best expressed to us in a blood-stained cross. It was at Calvary that God's righteousness and his holiness and his justice met in perfect unit in perfect union with his love and his mercy and his kindness the son of god who created all things and upholds all things by the word of his power became obedient to death even death on the cross so that we could be reconciled to him So that we could be adopted into his family. The gospel is so fantastic. It is so beautiful. It is so stunning. And these are the truths that John wants to impart to his fellow believers. He knows he's about to die. He knows his brothers have already died for the faith. Because of the love we have been shown, because of his love shed abroad in our hearts, the love that we show to others should know no bounds. It should be what others immediately see. A love and a peace that can only come from heaven residing in our very midst. And not just here, but anywhere where Christians are together, associated, or gather together. John put it so clearly last week. People can't see God with their eyes. We know that. God is spirit. Oh, but when they encounter his love expressed in and through regular people like you and me, that's where they see him the clearest. Last week I referenced uh, Mary, our nurse from our clinic in Nigeria. I want to keep this trip before you that some of us are taking next month. The Sickle Cell Clinic, Katie was gifted land, and they have worked so hard throughout this pandemic to build this new clinic, and it's beautiful. And it will be opening next month. This clinic serves hundreds of patients, giving them life-saving medicine and treatment and the love of Christ. It is a beautiful thing. But I want to correct something I said. I said that Mary has been serving for 13 years. I was incorrect. 22. Right from the very beginning. She has given herself tirelessly. Endless hours. To make sure every patient. Gets exactly the medicine that they need. So let's continue. When you think of the clinic. Think of nurse Mary. Who serves so well. So let's. Read our sermon text this morning. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we might have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, well, he is a liar. I added the well. Um, For he who does not love his brother, whom he has chosen, uh, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God also must love his brother. The life of God and the love of God in the life of people. John's letter pulsates with this beautiful truth. This is not dreary. It is not dry. It is not boring. At every turn, he is reminding us and teaching us who we are in Christ Very uncomplicated in his presentation. Love righteousness and love people. That's essentially it. John is speaking to the miracle of the new birth. Remember Paul said if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed and everything, behold, he says, look, everything, all things are new. Conversion to Christ is not merely joining a church or ascribing to certain beliefs or ideologies. Conversion is passing from death unto life. As Jesus said, he also said, being born again, born from above. Do you remember justification Sanctification, glorification, we went over these last week. Justification is a legal status change. When we become a Christian, our sins are forgiven. We're declared righteous. We're declared not guilty. Sanctification, we're set apart for God's purposes. That continuous aspect in which God is making us to be more like Christ. It is painful at times. It You, you, you look at yourself and you're like, I just took three steps backwards, right? But it's a process. God is at work in us to make us more like Christ. And glorification is that final 
end of the destination in which forever we will be with Christ. We will be free from temptation. We will be free from heartache and disease and sickness and so forth. And we talk about those three a lot as we should. But I think we don't speak to regeneration enough. Regeneration is that whole concept of being born again. It is what John focuses on. We are born again. The life of God is now in us. Yes, we are going to heaven when we die. But don't reduce Christianity to that. It is not a ticket that you punch and then you say, hey, I'm, I'm good to go, fire insurance. No, not at all. John masterfully weaves in those three concepts all throughout his letter. But it's all in the context that God himself is now alive in you. You are not who you used to be. You are one with Christ, our union with Christ. We are in Christ. Earlier in his letter, he's described our new life in terms of how we, sin, how we view sin and righteousness. Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament spoke exactly to that. God writes our, his law on our hearts. There's a new disposition. We don't always get it right. But we desire from our hearts to do what is right. We're no longer dead in our sins, but we are alive to righteousness. In the section we're in, John is emphasizing the preeminence of love. Divine love. He comes right out and says it. God is love. Therefore, follow his logic. It's not complicated. If God is love and if God is alive in you, then we, our lives, will now be governed by love. It will be a natural disposition that we have. It's a natural byproduct of God's life in us. It is both the evidence of his life in us and also something that we need to seek to grow in. Loving People. Now, what John does for us this morning is he expands our understanding of who God is. He has spoken much about God the Father and the Son. But now he speaks to the Spirit. He shows us the triunity of God. But let's set this up to see the progression of this concept in the New Testament, in the gospel. John is now speaking about the Holy Spirit. And he tells us that the Spirit himself lives in us. He's given us his Spirit. Do you remember how the New Testament opens up? How it begins in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. It's one of our behold statements. Behold, look, the virgin 
shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Saints, this is the gospel. God dwelling with people. God with us. God in us. Now let's look at the end of the New Testament. Take your Bibles and turn or scroll, if you will, if you like, to Revelation chapter 21. Almost the very last chapter. Well, it is almost the last chapter in your Bible. Revelation chapter 21. The Lord gives us this beautiful picture of eternity, of heaven. It's something that brings us great comfort when loved ones pass away in the Lord. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from, from behind the throne saying, Behold, look, look at this. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What does this mean, practically speaking? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is the gospel. God is with us. God is in us. We were separated by sin. God is holy, remember that. God sent his son to bear the punishment of our sin. When John speaks of the love of Christ, the love of God in the life of people, he will now be more specific. This regeneration means that God now lives in us. Specifically, His spirit lives in us. Every single Christian has the spirit living in him or in her. Now don't sleep on what he's saying here. He's talking about assurance. He says we know that we abide in him and him in us. Why? Because he's given us his spirit. He does not give his spirit to those who do not know him. Do we see the fruit of the spirit in us? Yes, it's easy to see. Do we see his work in our lives? Yes, even when we're kicking and screaming. I'm not asking if we're perfect because we're not. But John is saying, do you you see in your own life, in your own heart, what only God could do. He wants us to have confidence. The life of God is in us, in his spirit, coming to take up residence 
in our very being. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. We'll flash it up, but as always, I invite you to turn there as well, to see it in your own Bible. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul makes the most extraordinary statement. In him, Christ, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth. So you hear the truth and you act on it. You believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Oh, God had been saying for centuries in this new covenant, the spirit would come. This was not something the disciples made up around the campfire. The promised Holy Spirit. But watch what he says. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. All to the praise of his glory. What is Paul saying? Well, Paul is saying exactly what John is saying. He's saying the same thing. God gives us his spirit. It is more than just a doctrinal statement. It is life itself. The spirit of God is now in us and working in and through us. As Diane prayed earlier, testifying to us that we are the children of God. Changing us, developing us, leading us. But notice how John and Paul ultimately are saying the same thing. Paul says that the spirit is given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. We're not there yet, but we will be. It's a guarantee because God, remember the essence of the gospel is God dwelling with people. Matthew chapter one, Revelation chapter 21. And so we now have God dwelling in us, his Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee things are not right yet. We're not home yet. But God will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Now remember, John and Paul completely agree, although they say things differently from time to time. Paul says, when you believe, God's spirit lives in you. When you believe in Jesus, what does John say? The very next verse in our text today. The very next verse. Whoever confesses Jesus Christ. This is the apostolic statement, verse 14, the truth. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses, confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and him in God. It's the gospel. It's very uncomplicated. This stupendous love that God sent his Son to save us. Paul would tell the Corinthians that no one can say, no one can confess and acknowledge in truth that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit in him. Now, where does this lead us? Paul just told us that he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. John will tell us the same thing, but in a little different way. 
John is telling us that we know we are born again because the spirit lives in us, but he takes it a step farther. This certain knowledge that his spirit lives in us gives us great confidence, not just today, but on that great day when Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. You don't fear that day because your sins are forgiven through Christ. Did you catch that remarkable statement that he makes in our statement? As he is, so also are we in this world. God treats us the same way that he engages his son because of our union with him. Because we are in him. And because we are completely forgiven, adopted, and beloved. Go back to Revelation, if you will, if you care to, in your Bibles. Chapter 20. This is no small matter. There's no fear in life or in death. Revelation chapter 20. Perhaps one of the most arresting statements in all of scripture or passages. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, verse 12, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea, verse 13, gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the death. The lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is John telling us in our epistle? First John. You don't fear this. You don't fear that day. You will stand before God in all of his holiness and glory and righteousness and beauty, you will be before him with no fear, only confidence. Why? Because Christ has died in your stead. Because God's love, which is so stupendous, was shown to you. He sent his son to be the savior of the world. He died on the cross to bring us to God. In the previous chapter, chapter 3 of 1 John, John tells us that we have confidence that God hears and grants our prayer requests as we align ourselves with him. He uses the same word right here, confidence. We have confidence in the day of judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One more passage I want to take you to, and that is Hebrews chapter 2. I love this passage. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. John loves to say that. That's why Christ came. And deliver all those, watch this, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's why Christ came. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. You can know God who is infinitely holy and just. And have perfect confidence on that day when you see him face to face. Because God loves us and sent his son. Love triumphs over fear. It is not an ideology. Christ spilled his blood for this. Saints, John wants us to walk in confidence, to know that we are born again, to know that God has judged our sin when Jesus died on the cross. If we think about it, the reality is my love for God and people, my love for people, my capacity to love those around me, will deepen as my confidence in my own salvation deepens. The more we enter into God's amazing love for us, the more we understand here and here that God's love for us is absolutely unconditional, that this is not performance-based, it frees us up. Note his clear teaching in verse 19. We're landing the plane here. We love because God first loved us. Heavenly love born in our hearts always begets love for others. Our capacity and our desire to love people is the natural result of God's love in us. He cannot be any more clear in verse 20. If we say we love God, but we hate people, we're lying. He said, who are you kidding? This is not just a ticket you punch to get into heaven. This is the life of God in you. If God is love, well, that's going to show up in your life. It will show up imperfectly and you'll grow in that. He said the same thing, by the way, in chapter 2, verse 9. If you're taking notes, chapter 3, verse 17, and chapter 4, verse 18. This is not a one-off. The life of God and the love of God in the hearts of people. He sums it up. If we love God, we've got to love people. To put it plainly, if we say that we love vertically... We have to love horizontally. It's easy in a sense to say that you love God when you can't see him. John says, how can you say you love God that you, who you can't see, but then you hate people who you can't see? That's a contradiction. So the question I leave you for this week. What is one tangible way that you can love one specific person in your life this month. One specific way 
one specific person, one month, the month of March. How can we answer the call, what does love require of me? How can we inconvenience ourselves to love someone else this month? How can we die to ourselves and extend love to others? Now, here's the important part. How can we do so joyfully in the shadow of the cross behind us? Would you join me for prayer? As I said before, the entire book of 1 John is just one unbelievable statement after another, one truth after another woven together so perfectly. Let's give due consideration to this idea of loving people. Loving people intentionally and fiercely, loyally and faithfully, even through hardship and difficulty, is the mark of a Christian. We have our marching orders. That's how we demonstrate that we are in Christ. We love people. We said last week, it's easy to love people who are easy to love. It's easy to love people who think like us and who act like us and we naturally just fit together. Well, that Peter says, and Jesus, they both say the same thing. Well, that's great that you love people who love you, but what about the people who don't love you? That's the call. And we do that by God's grace. Let's pray. I know I said that before, but let's actually pray now. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Indeed, you are love. And you first loved us. Thank you for the simplicity and the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Lord and Savior. Put your confidence in his death, burial, and resurrection. Believing that he died for you. Took your sins upon himself. And rose again. Thank you for that good news. And may we be good news to those around us. As we work out our salvation. Remember, remind us. How deeply you love us. How deeply and unconditionally we are loved. So that we grow our own capacity to love those around us freely and joyfully. All of these things we pray in your name. Amen.